I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll preview the first face-to-face meeting between the Biden administration and top officials from China. Plus, we'll discuss reports of a domestic investment package being put together by Chuck Schumer and calls for COVID-19 relief funds to be exempt from Buy American waivers. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. All right, we're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. This is uh, Jack Caperell filling in for Andrew Schwartz today. And let's kick off this week's episode with really the news of the week, which is this kind of diplomatic flurry in Asia from Tony Blinken. That's going to culminate in a meeting. So it's Wednesday, March 17th today. I believe it's going to culminate in the meeting tomorrow when this is being recorded in Anchorage, Alaska with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. NSA, Jake Sullivan, and two of China's most senior diplomats. And this will be the first kind of face-to-face meeting between the Biden administration and high-ranking Chinese officials. I want to ask, you know, whether what you take of the process that the administration is taking here, is it intentional, you think, that they're meeting with kind of key allies in the Asia-Pacific first? They had the virtual quad meeting, then Blinken was in Japan, He's in Seoul today, and on on both stops, he kind of took China to task for coercive economic policy. And after those meetings and those press conferences, they're doing this meeting with Chinese officials. Do you think there's something to that process, that sequencing, and do you think it's significant? Oh, yeah. I think it's all orchestrated. It's intended to make clear to China that we are working firmly with our allies, meaning in this case, Japan and Korea, and that we are going to try to move forward uh, collectively. It's a demonstrating, I think, the difference between uh, the Biden administration and, and the Trump administration. I think it also illustrates um, how little political maneuvering room the president has. We've talked about this in the past with American public opinion getting ever more negative about China. And very strong uh, pressure from from the Hill, which we'll be talking a little bit about later on today, to take a hard line on China. Almost anything he does is going to open him to criticism from the Republicans. So I think it's no surprise to see talk about a tough line, uh, low expectations, and they're about to get even lower because I noticed just this morning the Secretary of State announced they've sanctioned two dozen more people under the Hong Kong Autonomy Act for being complicit in the erosion of Hong Kong democracy. So I don't think it's going to be a very pleasant meeting. And, and frankly, I was talking to some of my colleagues. Frankly, my bet is that, that, you know, we raise human rights and they walk out and it'll be a short meeting. To be fair, my colleagues thought I was wrong about that. So we'll, we'll find out. Look, definitely public opinion is getting harsher toward China. In fact, newly reported surveys that are published today show that China is far and away seen as a, a threat to the American interests. And uh, it, is, it stands alone in that respect. Public opinion supporting China or even having a moderate view is shrinking. So this, this continues to be something that, uh, that no elected official could afford to ignore. And that is the key backdrop to this. In addition, though, the meeting with allies is something that is 
derivative of a, something begun in the Trump administration, which is this notion of a Asia-Pacific quad, the four countries being uh, Australia, Japan, and India and the United States. It's an interesting arrangement in that all democracies and all but India uh, treaty allies of the United States and the U.S.-India relationship has been cultivated by sequential presidents for for some time now. It's a you know it's a large multi-party, uh, multi-ethnic democracy. So and and uh, soon to be the largest country in the world po- on a population basis. So that makes sense. It's interesting to see that carry over uh, and and become part of the the Biden administration's policy. It's an unusual arrangement from an economic policy standpoint. We obviously have free trade agreement with Australia and uh, a long trading relationship that's relatively open with Japan and a lot of tension with India. (laughs) So we'll see how that works out. In any case, good economic policy and good foreign policy has a multilateral, regional, and bilateral components to it. And uh, so I would expect to see that continue. Obviously, the bilateral U.S.-China meetings are going to get started. You always try to find a way to manage that relationship uh, in a constructive manner. President Trump focused almost exclusively on trade and tariffs as as the approach with the with the Section 301 investigation and actions following that. The Biden administration is taking its own approach, but the fact that it has begun a bilateral dialogue is, I think, good and un- not surprising. I was just going to say the Chinese... Uh Opened today by, uh, or I guess for them it was last night, by accusing the U.S. and Japan of pursuing an anti-China encirclement strategy. So this meeting is going to start with uh, a good bit of blood on the floor, I think. I wanted to ask before digging a little bit deeper into the Alaska meeting, whether you think the administration needs to offer something a little bit more concrete to Japan and Korea, specifically on the economic front, right? It's one thing for the Secretary of State to go and meet with his counterparts in those countries. But it's it's totally something else to convince Japan and Korea, their largest trading partner being China, you know, they're economically integrated with China. It's something else for them to take action in response to what's happening in Xinjiang or Hong Kong or align with the US on any number of other trade issues that have to do with China, right? So I mean, do you see this initial overture to Japan and Korea as being effective, or do you hope for or expect something more concrete to come in the future? I think our Asia-Pacific allies and partners have been very patient with the United States. I remember working on these issues back when Ernie Bauer, a friend of ours, was the head of the CSAS program for Southeast Asia. And Ernie always said, look, in, in this region, economic policy is foreign policy, and you've got to have an economic strategy. And the United States hasn't had much of one since the withdrawal from TPP. So there's an opportunity there. At the same time, I think our allies and partners of the region understand enough about our politics and have a long-term view of their relations with both the U.S. and other friends and neighbors in the region. And I think I think there'll be some patience uh, exhibited, but we do need to, some substance in that economic part of the relationship, uh, which is open for the Biden administration to take on. This is all. This has really been kind of a dilemma for the Asian states. They, they welcome our presence there as a counterweight to China. I can tell you from, from work we've done at CSIS and uh, something called our Allied Export Forum that Japan in particular has a lot of the same problems with China that we do, a lot of the same concerns. And they have some very specific and, and 
immediate territorial issues in the East China Sea. Um, the South China Sea is not the only place where the, the, the Chinese are making incursions. On the other hand, uh, all these countries are nervous about uh, making a choice. And one of the Trump administration's mistakes, I think, was to try to tell them, all oh, you have to choose. You know, you're on our side or you're on the other side and you can't sit on the fence. And most of them want to sit on the fence because of the significant economic relationship they've got. I think the Biden people will be more subtle about that, but they will also play on the uh, very strong concerns that these countries have with respect to Chinese behavior. Yep. So we'll see what happens there. Definitely a hard tightrope for the administration and the countries in Asia to walk. Now, the Alaska meeting is interesting because it doesn't sound like trade will be at the top of the agenda, right? Like the trade issues that the Trump administration identified in their 301 report. But it does sound as though issues that have trade implications will be pretty high up on the agenda. So that's what's happening in Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, and the U.S. labeling China's actions there as a genocide, and what's happening in Hong Kong, both of which have resulted in trade penalties or economic sanctions against Chinese officials and, and companies. Bill, you said earlier that you think we'll raise those issues and the Chinese will walk out. Scott, do you have any predictions? you think Bill is right? Anytime we have a new team, and this is, this is true of human organizations, not just the U.S. government, new teams want to be able to get the base right. Okay, you want, to, you want to set expectations at a point where you can perform against them in the future. And so I think if I were engineering this meeting, uh, I would want, want to get a lot of bad news out and confronted and create a baseline for improvement from there. So I think a, a, a confrontational meeting that, that somebody gets offended or walks out is probably uh, a, a good outcome from the standpoint of managing the relationship into the future. It's at time, in, in given the new administration in the U.S., uh, and I think, that, I think it's in everybody's interest to do it that way. So identify the problems now, solve them later. Bill, is that how you see this meeting going? They're kind of going to put all the cards and grievances on the table and uh, say, you know, this is where we are. These are our red lines. And how do we build off that? I think so. That's certainly been the signal to the United States. Actually, it's been the signal that both sides have been sending. They've been airing their grievances for the past several weeks. And I don't think they're going to pull punches tomorrow when, when they, they actually meet. What I was thinking about when I said that the, the Chinese might walk is, is, you know, how the two sides will manage the, uh, the punches. I think both countries believe, both governments believe it's in their interest to take a tough line. The Chinese, have, uh, Xi Jinping in particular, has been adept at playing the nationalist card in China and trying to convince the Chinese people that the, the Americans are out to get them. And I've already talked about the, the, the situation in the United States where you've got a growing number of Americans who already believe that about China. The president finds himself in a situation where he's going to be attacked probably in both parties if he's perceived as being weak. So they both have incentives to be tough. I think the, the, the Chinese are particularly sensitive, I think, on, on the human rights issue. They can't bring themselves to acknowledge that anything we're talking about is actually happening. Uh, you know, these are all lies or mistakes or Fake news, as the last administration would say. And, you know, the, the psychologists say the first step toward cure is recognition of the problem. They're clearly not there. And I think that uh, that compels them to react strongly when people hold them to account. Uh, they can't admit it 
they can't justify it or explain it because they can't admit it. And so they don't have a lot of, of choices except to hit back. And I, I think that makes things harder to solve, frankly. But the contrary school of thought is that, that there's too much at stake uh, you know, for a walkout and that it's in the Chinese interest to stay and, and to define the areas where cooperation uh, will be possible. And there are some, climate being the most obvious. So we'll see if they want to play a constructive role or not. I just think that that uh, the Xi Jinping approach will be not to be constructive at this time. You know, the, the, the fundamental view that's taken hold in China is that, you know, they're rising, we're declining. And uh, if you look at Chinese history, a lot of it is, you know, Chinese trying to figure out where their place in the hierarchy is, because if you know your place, then you know how you're supposed to behave. It's a very Confucian philosophy. If you figure out where you are in the food chain, that tells you how you're supposed to act. What that has tended to produce in Chinese history is when they think they're on top or getting there, they tend to overreach and they tend to bully. And I think that's what we're going to see. So for those uh, Seinfeld fans in the listening audience, think of this as Festivus without the tests of strength. We will have airing of grievances. <laughs> Let me ask one more question before we move on. Do you think it's a mistake that the administration has said that this is going to be a one-off meeting and not the start of a series of dialogues that are more results-oriented? Do you think that they're foreclosing a potential opportunity there? Oh, no. Look, this is a, this is a very uh, sound uh, hedging strategy, because then if it is a terrible meeting, they'll have to pick up the pieces and put it in, construct something separately. But look, I think Bill has said this uh, several times before when we've talked about sort of U.S.-China relations. There's usually a mechanism that gets created, gets adopted by an, an administration, and that becomes the, 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 the framework going forward. And I think the Biden administration has done the right thing by not committing to that in advance. Go have the meetings, see what happens, set, set the baseline, as it were, okay, and determine where the real tensions are, and then figure it out going forward. So I, that's a probably pretty much what I do. I think that's right. I don't, wouldn't say they're not telling the truth, but I, I, I wouldn't say their, their statements have precluded or foreclosed the kind of dialogue that, you know, the past six or seven presidents have set up with the Chinese. It'll be different. I mean, it has to be different because no president likes to say, we're doing the same thing my predecessors did. By saying this is one off, they've given themselves more options and then and they've reduced the risk of failure. Because if they said, you know, we're going to, we want to start a dialogue then, you know, the Chinese could torpedo that rather easily by either walking out or, or by or by refusing to, you know, to continue the dialogue, uh, sort of slap in the face that leaves Biden looking inept. This way, uh, they protect themselves on the downside uh, and they come back. You know, it's too important a relationship to have no dialogue for the next four years. So they'll find a way to restart. It may take a while. It'll have a different name. You know, it won't be the JCCT or the SED or the SNED or whatever they'll call it. They'll come up with a new name. Administrations are good at that. Interesting. So we'll see what happens from the, the meeting in Alaska, which is also an interesting location for a meeting, but I guess geographically makes sense. Let's go to the U.S. Senate now, where China is, surprise, surprise, still a topic. There's reporting that, you know, in the wake of the $1.9 trillion stimulus that the White House is now touting, the next big bill that might come up and might have a real shot of 
passing is one that's aimed at countering China's economic influence. So according to the reporting, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is working on legislation that really is a what I think of as a down payment or big investment into some critical U.S. industries and supply chains and kind of tracks with you know the administration doing a supply chain review and their whole approach of getting the domestic picture right before going out on a big trade policy adventures. And what's interesting to me is this approach differs a lot from how I think the Trump administration approached the China economic issue, which, as Bill said earlier, was really, a, you know, choose between us and them. And they tried to force that choice uh, through the use of, of tariffs. But I guess I want to start with a, a more cosmic question, which is, is this type of bill, this type of approach where we pour money into critical industries, and incentivize U.S. manufacturing, is that approach really just industrial policy in, in disguise? And if so, is that warranted given the way China has approached its own economy? Look, it's a little difficult to comment on a bill that doesn't exist. Right. There, there are ideas at this stage. And conceptually, I think competitiveness is a big issue. I think I think tax policy and particularly with regard to the way we treat research and development, but overall a number of levers, especially tax policy, uh, that can boost competitiveness and are worth considering at this. But I, nothing's been translated to legislation yet. So I think it's a space to watch. The couple of observations. First, uh, my recollection is Majority Leader Schumer is in cycle in and faces the, the voters in 2022. So this might be a nice thing to have him demonstrate some personal leadership for the, for the voters of New York. Uh, who will consider whether to retain his services in the United States Senate. So that's, that makes sense to me. I also note that there are, there are a few expiring provisions or, or provisions from the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that were done to make the bill uh, so it qualified for treatment under reconciliation, which members of Congress may want to revisit. Uh, in particular, the treatment of research and development under the tax code changes in January 2022. So my guess is they'll want to get out ahead of that. And so I think Senator Ron Wyden, who's chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, has made similar arguments that that this is an important time to consider U.S. competitiveness in light of of the rise of China. And Senator Schumer is in some ways uh, on the same page. What I find interesting, and th this looks like a bill that ought to be able to run via normal uh, regular order in the Senate. I believe there's strong bipartisan interest in doing something. And so while we had a just just had a reconciliation project with the with the uh, COVID relief bill of a couple trillion dollars that passed on a party line vote, this one looks like the process ought to be, and we should expect it to be strongly bipartisan and perhaps overwhelmingly supported. Uh, by the by the Senate. So I, I think that's good news. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Every Republican senator who voted against the, the $1.9 trillion spending bill will find ways to show how it helps their constituents in their state. <laughs> and that's that's a natural impulse among members, even though they, they voted against the bill, but they will take credit for the benefits that it provides in their states. This is one where I think you will have broad policy appeal, and uh, then they'll find ways that will will look much more like the typical Senate centrist policy that comes out of regular order. Yes, it's kind of the reverse of what of, of the number that the Republicans did on John Kerry in two thousand four when he was talking about the war. He said, "I was 
for it before I was uh, before I was against it. This time the Republicans are going to say I was against it before I was for it. Um, they all voted down, but uh, you're right; they'll take credit for it nonetheless. To go back to Jack's questions, his cosmic questions, uh, yes, it's industrial policy in disguise, and yes, it's a good idea, and it has a couple advantages. Uh, one, it tracks exactly what Biden has been talking about throughout the campaign. It's part of the running faster strategy. It's about making uh, making America stronger so that we can better compete with the challenges we face from from China. So it's very much in line with where the administration has been going. Second, I think Scott's right. There's demonstrated bipartisan support for this. Uh, it's one more example of how you can always sell this stuff to Republicans if you argue national security. This happens to be a good argument for national security. It's not a phony argument. Chinese are, are a security threat. And this uh, is a, you know, a way to put us in a better position to, to uh, meet the challenges they present. The problem, of course, will be that all those people who said we're spending too much money on infrastructure, some of them are going to have to say, this is also the same. We're spending too much money and we shouldn't do this. I don't think that will be a majority. I think Schumer's pursuing it for, you know, New York political reasons, but also on behalf of the administration and because he sees it as in contrast to the uh, the stimulus bill, this is something that's going to pass on a bipartisan basis. Uh, it won't be unanimous, but it'll get uh, plenty of Republican votes. Putting it together is going to be complicated and is going to take longer than he thinks, partly because there's a surplus of ideas. And uh, you have to kind of sort out, uh, they're not all good ones uh, in the sense that they won't all they all won't all work. And there's a kind of a fine line between, you know, providing overall economic support for innovation and R&D and, and uh, in, in the high tech sectors and, you know, handing out money to companies that are happen to be in the district or state of that important senator or congressman. And so they have to kind of thread their way through all of that. Before I forget, I would just note on uh, Scott's point about tax policy and competitiveness, the Finance Committee on the 16th held a hearing on the tax code and domestic manufacturing. Next week, they're holding a hearing on international tax policy and the domestic workforce. So, Scott, you're certainly onto something that uh, the tax issue isn't going away anytime soon. But just getting back to what Bill said, I mean, you said, you know, Bill, that this is a strategy we should be pursuing, but at the same time, you seem to cast doubt on our, on the Senate or the Congress's ability to allocate funds in a way that isn't politically motivated, right? I mean, how do you pick which industries get money? How do you pick, you know, what types of investments should be supported? It's maybe cynical of me to say, but it seems like a lot of directed bad numbers do they think their support is necessary to get the bill across the finish line, right? That doesn't seem like a strategic way innovation strategy or an industrial policy. Well, that and the announcement from various parties that they want to restore earmarks should, you know, give people pause for concern. It's the sausage making process of politics. It's, It's messy. And to accumulate the votes, sometimes you have to do that. I mean, the right policy answer is the government uh, shouldn't be bailing out individual companies. It should be supporting R&D and innovation, and it should be identifying critical sectors, which the Biden administration is well on its way to doing via executive order. 
And the Congress should be figuring out how to best support greater investment, not just public investment, but private investment uh, in those sectors, uh, and then stop, you know, and let the companies uh, make it or break it on their own and, and survive on their own. But, you know, the messy reality of, of Congress is that sometimes somebody's going to come in and say, well, you need my vote and you're only going to get my vote if you can cough up $50 million for this company. And um, sometimes that comes back and bites the politicians, by the way, but uh, more often than not, it doesn't. And you'll probably see some of that. Look, I, I, I want to preface this by saying I'm a complete fan of neutral rules. We preach that in trade policy all the time. I think it's a, it's a healthy way for government rules to operate is to make neutrality a key principle. But I would acknowledge I am pro-committee work and I'm pro-earmark. I'm pro-committee work because committees have the expertise to solve problems. I've been very frustrated by the behavior of our Congress that takes bills immediately to the Rules Committee and passes them in essentially a parliamentary fashion. I think it's bad for our system and usually bad for public policy. The reason I'm pro-earmark is very simple. Somebody has to make the spending decisions. And I'd much rather have an official who puts their his or her name on a ballot responsible for a direction of funds than some GS-15 I've never heard of and certainly didn't vote for. Okay, so uh, so I don't think any of this is necessarily bad, but I do I do applaud Senator Wyden for getting what's basically a 50-50 finance committee working together on important issues, because I think ultimately that's the way we get out of our current partisan polarity and start doing things that are good for the whole of the country. So I maybe regret those words because it's hard to get both neutrality and uh, and pork in the same uh, same sentence. Uh, but I do note that, you know, the, the Reagan tax cuts engineered by uh, Bob Packwood and Lloyd Benson of the Senate Finance Committee uh, was a bill that was supported by both Ted Kennedy and John Kerry because it was good for Massachusetts. That's the way the Senate ought to work. OK, it hasn't in a while and maybe it can again. To further torture the sausage analogy, just think of earmarks as the grease that makes the uh, makes the whole system run. Amazing extension of the metaphor. Um, I will hold on the earmark debate for another episode because it could last an entire episode. Yes. <laughs> but we can't continue the industrial policy uh, theme with one last uh, issue to go over today, which is how the COVID relief funds should be spent and who should qualify, which companies should qualify to receive funds. So 13 Democrats have written president to say that uh, waivers from the Buy American program should be suspended for funds that are spent from the $1.9 trillion relief bill. So in essence, these senators are concerned that non-American, that foreign companies are going to receive essentially U.S. taxpayer dollars and benefit from a relief bill that's designed to save American companies. The most basic question here is, should foreign companies be allowed to receive funds from a relief bill that's supposed to help American businesses and help American consumers? I mean, why should foreign companies be allowed to receive that money? Let me start by saying that's the wrong question, okay? The, the right question is, is it in the US interest to belong to a government procurement agreement that gives American firms access to foreign uh, government procurement and foreign firms access to 
American government procurement? That's the first question, because that's the issue that the senators are raising. We were one of the founding signatories of the WTO agreement on government procurement. Uh, it's not a huge agreement. Well, it's an important one, though. Uh, has, what, 20 parties, uh, counting Europe as one. And some of our key allies are part of this. And some sophisticated companies for, uh, for whom American procurement benefits from them being part of the supply chain. So that's, that's the first question. Is, is it smart for us to be in the WTO government procurement agreement? I think yes, for both export and import reasons, and most importantly, for standards reasons. If you want to have 6G for use by governments, okay, the U.S. government needs to partner with like-minded governments to get there, and procurement is one way to do it. So for that, that's the first question. And uh, when, you, when, you, when you give your answer to that one, then we can talk about where the supplemental spending ought to go. I just add, I, I don't disagree with Scott. I just add that the Schultz chair has done some work on this subject specifically in the in the medical sector, uh, PPE and pharmaceuticals. And we concluded that what works best in that sector is a trusted partner model that uh, in terms of getting the equipment uh, or the or the drugs out and available and developed, if you try to do it all yourself, you're going to uh, make it slower and more expensive. That uh, if you could work with trusted, reliable partners cooperatively, uh, it's win-win for everybody. And what the senators are proposing to do is 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 a win-loss proposal. It's kind of Trumpian, you know. Let's take care of ourselves, and who cares about everybody else? And in fact, this is an area where countries that are reliable partners can all work together to produce mutually successful outcomes. And I just hate to see us pass up that uh, opportunity. Plus, we're obligated to provide it anyway under the GPO under the GPA. So. Um, you know, to, to do what they want and to provide, to suspend those waivers, we have to provide compensation if we do that. So it gets expensive fairly quickly. I'm a little disappointed in some of my uh, former colleagues in the advocacy business. Nobody seems to be selling the benefits of the WTO procurement agreement. It gets attacked constantly. It was, con it was under attack for four years in the Trump administration. It's under attack now by populist senators. Uh, probably of both parties if we got down to it. But it actually provides some pretty impressive benefits and is a helpful way to operate. And so I wish there was a group out there, you know, taking some responsibility and going up and, and making the case for it instead of just let it be a punching bag like this. Sooner or later, something bad politically is going to happen because nobody's defending what's a, what, what's a useful and beneficial program. Yeah, the example that I, that I think of that trips me up about this whole thing is, you know, there's $500 million or something like that in the COVID relief bill that's devoted to scaling up testing, right? And if it costs 10 bucks to procure the testing inputs from a country that's party to the GTA and it costs 50 bucks to procure the same inputs from a American company and the American company can make less of the input than foreign company, it would be inflicting an own goal not to diversify your sourcing and make use of the inputs that you can get from trading partners, right? And, and as a result, be able to test more Americans. Uh, and I think that's kind of an underappreciated dimension to this. But final pushback here, if, if the U.S. is spending so much more, you know, than some of our other GPA or trade partners on government procurement as a result of the virus, 
doesn't that give foreign companies kind of a bigger bite at the Apple than what U.S. companies are given uh, to bid on abroad? And in that sense, you know, it's maybe not a reciprocal arrangement and we should think about some restrictions. Equal opportunity in the procurement game doesn't mean equal outcome. What you want are neutral terms to compete for procurement contracts without determining who wins and who loses. It happens in this circumstance that, that the U.S. is printing and spending money as as never before, at least never uh, even in terms of its scale since World War II. And so it's natural because we're spending more, there's more procurement. But what you want are neutral rules in terms of competing for and securing those contracts. If we're spending more and therefore there's more procurement here than outside, that seems to me to be a point that is uh, subject to a lot of other criticisms, like perhaps we shouldn't be spending so much. But then again. Partly it's economic size. We're a big economy. We're always going to provide more opportunities uh, than small economies. I think you have to look at the collective picture, not on individual bilateral situations. Great. And, you know, Scott, I, I take your point well that there's kind of this growing drumbeat around procurement and our obligations and waivers and buy American. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if there's a straw that breaks the camel's back in the future. But I think with that cliffhanger, we'll close things out for the week. We'll see what happens with Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan in their showdown with the Chinese in Alaska. I'd have a report on that for you all on next week's episode of The Trade Guys. Thanks. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.